this morning, and I asked everybody to share what's bringing discouragement to your heart. Or if we went around the room this morning and asked everyone to share what is a pain or a loss that you've experienced, we'd have a hundred different discouragements. We'd have a hundred different pains, a hundred different losses. Everybody in this room at one time or another, maybe currently, has experienced discouragement, has experienced loss and pain. And one of the challenges in Christianity is that people are always looking for encouragement, people that are always looking for hope. And so one of the temptations with Christianity is try to solve every discouragement, every loss and every pain with its own little nuance. When the reality is, is that the Bible hasn't dealt with every loss. The Bible doesn't speak about every pain. The Bible doesn't give counseling direction of how to bring encouragement for every discouragement that exists. The Bible really drills back to one central answer for it all. It says, here's the one promise that's supposed to give your heart courage. Jesus is with his followers in John chapter 14, and he's preparing his followers for tough days ahead. Jesus is in his final moments of teaching, and so he knows that his followers are going to be without their leader in just a matter of days. And so he starts out this message by saying to his followers, he says, hey, take heart. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, hey, your hearts should have hope. There should be great courage in your hearts, even though there's trouble on the horizon and there seems to be things stirring right now, I still want you to be courageous. Well, why can Jesus say to his followers, take heart? Why can Jesus say just moments later, as recorded in John 16, why can he say to you and I today, hey, do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. There's going to be problems. But he says again at the end of John 16, take heart. Have full courage and full hope, even when you're faced with tribulation. How can Jesus say that? Jesus can say that because he has the promise that deals with every loss. Jesus has the promise that deals with every pain. No matter your loss today, no matter your struggle today, you are asked to take heart. You are asked to have courage. And the reason for that is one word, heaven. No matter what your loss, no matter what your pain, there is only one source that brings continual and everlasting strength. That source is heaven. And that's Jesus, what he exactly promises his followers. He doesn't say, take heart, do not let your hearts be troubled because I'm going to make things better and you're going you're to be fine right here. You know, he says, no, what does he say? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to squelch the evil among you. He says, I'm going to take a, prepare a place for you, what? So that I can take you and be there with you. So this promise from Jesus is not one to fix everything in that moment, but is to prepare something where his people can be with him. In other words, Jesus gives a promise of heaven. Jesus gives an everlasting promise. Well, what is our everlasting promise that God has given to us? What is the hope of being a Christian? If you look around the world today, the majority of Christians in the world take us out of the picture. When we're not the majority, take all white Christians out of the picture, all American Christians out of the picture. Why should Christians have hope? Because the majority of Christians are living in mass trouble. Famine, war, 
persecution. So why should those Christians have hope? Why should you and I have hope? Well, God has made this everlasting promise. And so I want to start today by looking at what's the ultimate hope for any Christians. And I'm going to pick out a couple of Bible verses. We're going to kind of be all over the place today. I want to pick out some verses that really summarize why we should have hope. And the first one is Philippians 3, 20 and 21, really gets to the point where the Apostle Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Check this out. This is critical to understand what Paul is hoping for or what he wants. What does he want to happen? He wants Jesus to come back. And then what does he want to happen? He wants his body to become like the body of Jesus. In other words, the hope of the Christian is the return of Christ and the change of our bodies to be like the body of Jesus Christ. So, upcoming in a couple of weeks, there's this season in the church called Advent. Maybe you've heard the word Advent before. Maybe you haven't heard the word Advent. Advent is not about some little nice manger scene sitting on your dresser at home. Advent isn't about the manger scene. Advent is about the coming of Jesus Christ. So the whole point of lighting candles, the whole point of focusing back on the first coming of Jesus is to focus on the second coming of Jesus. Advent simply means coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. And this has kind of become mocked by Hollywood and mocked by even Christians that have written really bad books about this stuff. And because really bad books have been written and movies have been made, it kind of is more of a mockery of when's the end times and Jesus coming. Then you got Christians running around saying, well, he's supposed to come at this date or that date. And they don't know their Bibles well enough. So they make promises that can't be kept. And what does it do? It kind of changes the coming of Jesus in from the ultimate promise into the, well, maybe. Kind of a good thing. When in reality, this is what everything's leading to. This is what God is planning, is that his son Jesus Christ would come back and transform our bodies. Let's look at another verse that helps us understand this. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. This is at the end of a sermon, the end of really one of the first Christian sermons ever. Talking about Jesus ascending into heaven, and then it finishes by this. Whom heaven must receive, receive Jesus, until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the Peter here, the, the preacher, is basically saying, hey, Jesus is in heaven, but guess what? There's a time coming when what? Jesus returns to what? Restore all things. If you have your Bible on Acts 3.21, just circle that word, underline that word, restore. Your Bible might use the word redeem. But this is a big deal. That Jesus isn't waiting in heaven and is going to gather everybody to heaven saying, come on, come to me. No, Jesus is going to return to earth to do what? To restore all things, to make everything perfect again. Resurrection in Philippians 3, restoration in Acts 3. That's what the ultimate hope of the Christian is, is that Jesus returns and there's the resurrection of us. We get to be like Jesus, but Jesus returns and at the same moment, guess what? He restores everything. It's all made perfect. Turn in your Bibles if you have with them, and then you can kind of just 
lay out here the rest of the, the time and to the end, last page of the Bible, basically. Revelation, Revelation 21 was read for us earlier. Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and 22 are, are getting to the final message of where Jesus had given a picture. Jesus had given a vision, an image to a prophet, the prophet John, the apostle John, the church leader John. And basically said, hey, give this message to the people to encourage them. So Revelation, think of Revelation this way. So many of you are so confused about Revelation, okay? Stop reading books from Amazon and Revelation right now. Just stop, Okay. And stop watching weird channels in the upper numbers of cable. Okay, if it's like channel 733 and they're talking about Revelation, turn it off right now, okay? Turn it off. Revelation is this. It's a message of hope. Revelation was written to give hope to persecuted Christians. Revelation was written, given by God, to say to God's people, hey, get ready. You're in trouble now. There's more trouble coming. But guess what? Look at all of this good news. God is in control, and God is going to bring something magnificent. It's all about hope. Don't get caught up in the little details of six candles, 33 candles, 14 angels. No, no, no. Get the big picture. God's using human language to bring a message of hope. And so he finishes here in Revelation just drawing with beautiful imagery, saying, this is what I'm going to do. So in Revelation 21.3 that's been read, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Very simple. God's saying this. God's going to be here in fullness. That this is, this is the hope. That when Jesus returns, what happens? He brings restoration, and the full presence of God is now right here. And that's why the next verse, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Catch this. The reason there will be no more tears, and the reason why death will be no more, is because God will be there. The reason there will be no more tears is because God will be here. The greatness of heaven is not the absence of trouble. The greatness of heaven is the presence of God. This is why so many of us, we don't long for heaven enough. Because you know, when you talk about heaven, do you know what you're longing for? You're longing for the absence of trouble. Right? So most people think of heaven as what? All the bad stuff is done. Which, there's an element of truth to that. But then nobody longs for heaven because they don't long for the positive aspect of heaven. God himself. The reason that heaven is so exciting is that God is going to be fully present. And that greatness is going to flow out of the presence of God. So you can say the ultimate hope of the Christian, let's recap. The ultimate hope of the Christian is what? Jesus returning, the resurrection, the restoration. So the ultimate hope of the Christian can be said this way. A restored creation in resurrected humanity in the full and continuous presence of God. This is your hope today. This is why no matter which of the hundred different struggles, the hundred different losses, that you can have courage today. Because this is your future. What you're experiencing today is temporary. No matter how long you experience it for, it's only temporary. Your future is this. A restored creation 
a brand new body and life in the full presence of God forever. That is heaven. That is your future. So that's the ultimate hope of the Christian. Well, that's coming. That's going to happen when Jesus returns. We don't know the point. We don't know the time. Well, the obvious question that flows from that, then, at least in my mind, is this. What happens now? What happens if I die today? Everybody in this room, I'm assuming, I believe it's a safe assumption, everybody in this room has lost a loved one at some point in their life. Well, what happens now if I die, if our hope, if the promise of God is still out here? Let's think about that for a moment, and I want to look at a Bible passage. What happens now? 2 Corinthians 5, 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul is having this conversation of why he can have hope in the midst of himself being persecuted. He says this, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. These are just a couple of verses taken out of a, a passage where Paul is talking about himself having courage in this battle that he's living in because he wants to go and be with the Lord, yet he wants to remain and do ministry. So in this passage, the main thing to catch is this. Paul has this belief and this understanding, this revelation from God that the moment he dies, he's going to be at home with the Lord. So well, how does this work if our future inheritance is the resurrection and the return of Jesus doesn't happen, but Paul says he wants to go home and be with the Lord. How does this work? Let's look at another passage, Philippians 1, 22 to 23. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Again, I hope you're hearing in these verses, again, the desire of the Apostle Paul to what? Be in the presence of God. This morning, I want you to take great courage. For those who die in Christ, those of our loved ones who knew Jesus Christ, today we can take confidence that where are they? They are in the presence of God. You may have never heard it this way before, and don't mean to disappoint you today, but our loved ones are not in their eternal dwelling today. Our loved ones are not in forever heaven. They are in a temporary heaven of sorts. They are fully in the presence of God. And you say, what? Where does that come from? Well, it comes back again from the basic understanding of what? The ultimate hope of the Christian is the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. If that wasn't the ultimate hope, if the resurrection of Jesus wouldn't have been necessary or wouldn't have even been that big of a deal. If the whole hope was what? Just take our spirits and go off to some cloud somewhere. Jesus could have died on the cross. His spirit could have went up to the cloud. And we've been just fine. But that's not the hope. Because God created us not as spirits. He created us as human beings. You've got to remember this. The physical aspect of our life is not evil. What has made it evil is the sin in the world. But God said creation was what? Good. Not when there was just a spirit, but when there was what? Physical matter. When there was physical beings. So the ultimate hope of the Christian is a physical resurrection in the presence of God 
a temporary, lack of better term, holding place for those who die in Christ is to be in the presence of God. Still a pretty good deal. I mean, an amazing deal. Our loved ones are not in the cemetery up on 10th Street. The physical body is there resting, decaying, but the spiritual soul, the being of them, is fully in the presence of God. We don't know exactly how this works. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, just kind of, he just says the statement. doesn't give us any, let me work out the scientific understanding of how that's going to work for you. It's just the promise. You're going to be in the presence of God. This is awesome to think about. Well, let's just, I want to spend a moment every once in a while just to ask maybe a common question that comes up. If our loved ones are in the presence of God, do our loved ones know what is going on on earth? Right? That's a good question. Get asked by a, a lot of people. Now, I'm going to enter into uh, the imagination station for a moment. However, an imagination statement founded on the teaching from God's word. Let me say why I think that's critical. I want to encourage all of you in the weeks ahead to get in the imagination station. But an imagination station that's founded on God's word. Again, there's far too many people that are in the imagination station about heaven founded on a book written by someone who had an experience. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not true. That's not worthy of full trust. There's one thing that's worthy of full trust, God's word. So let's start with what God's word has made known. God's word has made known. If you want to write down some verses to look at later, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. If you want to look at this later, Revelation 6, 9 through 11 gives a really short description of the saints of God being in the presence of God right now. And, and so kind of this idea is built up from there right now that the saints of God are ruling with Jesus Christ, the church, here on earth. I would contend from that passage and others in Revelation that those who have died in Christ are actually joined with Christ now in heaven, ruling the church here on earth. That those saints have awareness to what's going on in the church around the globe. Does that mean that the saints know what you had for breakfast this morning? I don't know. There, there's no clarity from the Bible of whether that happens or, 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 or doesn't happen. The clarity is this, though, that saints are in the presence of God now. And it tells us that God through Jesus Christ is reigning right now. And so I take that a step further and say, I believe then, therefore, it would make sense that the saints are aware of what the church is doing right now all around the globe. So I believe this. The church right now is making amazing strides all around the world, taking the gospel to places I've never heard it. I believe the saints are in heaven clapping, praising God. They don't have hands, so I don't know how they're clapping, but they're doing something, right? They're disembodied spirits at the moment reigning with Christ, but they're celebrating that reality. So that's a little bit of imagination station. But we can provide other clarity from the Bible. And again, this is a hard one. I know today there's going to be some stuff that's great, and there's going to be some stuff that you're like disappointed in. One thing that's clear from the Bible is this. Those in Christ who have died from now are not returning back to earth as an angel or a spirit or in any other form or fashion. 
none of our loved ones became angels when they died. Angels are separate beings created by God. They're created as ministering spirits to work on behalf of God. Human beings, the Bible makes clear, we have a different role to play. We were created differently to reflect the image of God here on earth. And so we can say with confidence that our loved ones are not angels, are ministering spirits. I would contend we can say with complete confidence in the teaching of the Bible that we are not in conversation with our loved ones who have passed away. There is no conversation. Two things of why that is, is this. Number one is this. Many people use that of talking to a saint so that saint can talk to God for them. Here's the foundational problem with that. The foundational problem for that is this, that everybody in Jesus Christ is a saint. The point of Jesus coming was to give all of us direct access to God. There's not a hierarchy anymore. The moment we bring a hierarchy back into it, all of our teaching just crumbles. And so, guess what? Now, would it be cool to talk to a loved one? That would be pretty cool. I would contend this. It's a lot more amazing to talk to God. So I would say that again. It's pretty cool to talk to a loved one. But guess what? We get to talk to God directly. And so today, take heart that our loved ones in Christ are resting, are living in the presence of God. Yet we're not in interactivity with them. We have interactivity with God himself. And so finally, one final thought that I wanted to touch on, and I want to be really careful how I say this, because I do not, well, God's word can offend, I don't want to offend. Recognizing all of us come from a little different history and a little different bringing up. There's that one other common thing that gets asked a lot. When we die now, what about the issue of purgatory? Purgatory is a common teaching in variety of different religious segments of our society. And why is it that we would contend that purgatory is not just wrong, but purgatory is opposed to the teaching of the Bible? Here's why we would teach that. is because the point of purgatory is this, the understanding that we're sinners until we die, which is correct. Everybody in this room, nobody's perfected before you die. I don't care how much you know the Bible, you're going to be a sinner until you die because of broken creation. So the point of purgatory is this, understanding that we're sinners until we die. Purgatory provides the opportunity then to move towards sainthood because I have not achieved sainthood here. Again, it gets right at the foundational understanding of Jesus being our righteousness, our holiness, and making us all saints. It just goes right at the foundation of what it means on our understanding of biblical teaching today. And so purgatory is, is something that provided that opportunity to move towards sainthood. It, it kind of provided a safe zone in a sense. Again, I want to be careful. Many of us have family members and we ourselves have, have grown up in, in this realm. But I want you to really think about it for a moment. That your hope today, your hope is not to get into a holding zone. And in that holding zone, then become good enough to make it to the end stage. Your hope today, not from the words of Rich, but from Jesus himself, today you will be with me in paradise. Your hope is to be in the presence of God 
And so this morning, let me encourage you, if you leave here today, and on the way home, I've used this example before, you sin, you curse the pastor when you walk out of this room this morning, and then you get struck by a car on the way home, guess what? I'm going to preach at your funeral that you're forgiven, even though you just sinned right before you die. Because in Christ, you are holy, perfect, and righteous. It's not just this in and out relationship. So today, take heart. You can be holy in the presence of God. So that's just a quick understanding of what happens right now when, when we die. Let's get to the good stuff, right? While you came this morning. What about the long game? What about the promise of eternity? So let's do two comparison charts really quick. There's a really good author. Write this down in, in your notes. Someone a lot smarter than I. Named Randy Elkhorn, A-L-C-O-R-N. Randy Elkhorn has written a book on heaven. Way smarter than I am. He's covered literally everything you can. He's extremely well respected. Look him up. Again, stay away from the high number television channels and go to Randy Elkhorn. Randy Elkhorn, this gives this beautiful chart that's really helpful. So, common thought about eternal heaven, resurrected bodies, and a new kingdom forever. Common thought is this. When people think of heaven, they think of non-earth. That it's clouds up there somewhere. When people think of heaven, they think of unfamiliar, otherworldly. When we think of heaven, we think of disembodied spirits. Basically floating on clouds, kind of hovering all over the place. When we think of heaven, we think of nothing to do. I mean, a lot of people are thought, hey, you're going to play the harp someday, and all you're going to do is float around on a cloud, okay? That's kind of common thought of heaven in books, sometimes taught in churches. None of that, none of that is found in the Bible. It's not there. So what's the biblical perspective? First and foremost is this, a new earth. What do we read in Revelation 21? It says this, Jesus returns in what? A new heavens and a new earth. It's just language, again, it's prophetic language of restoration. There's other language in Revelation saying everything else passed away. We've kind of got caught up in these books and these movies that are like, everything's going to burn, and it's just going to disappear. And then if it all disappears, we're going to float in all these clouds. Not going to happen. It's not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible's teaching. I mean, if you want to take the Bible scientifically, literally, sure, you can draw some of those conclusions, but then there's other conclusions that are going to get you in a world of trouble. It's giving you an overwhelming picture of what's going to happen. There's going to be this recreation, a restoration. What I'd encourage you to do today is this. Go home, read Genesis 1 and 2, and then read Revelation 21 and 22. The whole idea is this. God's going to put it way he originally designed it was what? Trees, animals, work, physical stuff, physical beings. That's the hope. It's going to be a new earth. So when you think of heaven, just think of heaven. You're driving your minivan tomorrow, be like, oh, heaven's not in the clouds. Heaven is a perfectly running minivan where the electric doors even work in 20 below in the weather. Right? That's heaven. New earth. Heaven is going to be familiar. It's not like you're going to be like, geez, this is a new type of dirt. Never seen that before. No. Guess what? It's going to be perfect dirt. It's going to be perfect dirt that grows the perfect non-GMO-free corn, whatever you want to call it. It's going to be amazing. 
And guess what? You're going to have a brand new body. You're not going to be a spirit. You're going to have a physical body of some sort. Now, we get a pretty good picture of this because what? Philippians 3 said what? Transform my body to be like the body of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, again, another passage on resurrection, covers the whole thing saying what? Our hope is brand new bodies, immortal, imperishable. And when Jesus was resurrected, at least the writings we have give us a picture of at least a pretty normal body. That nobody was like, wow, what's that engine or that car? It was just, it was a physical body. Looked like a physical body, looked like a current physical being, but was perfect. You're going to have a brand new body. It's going to be amazing. I don't, I, you can imagine yourself. You want to think, oh, I'm going to be an athlete final, or I'm going to finally be a good singer. I got no idea on that stuff, but it's going to be perfect. Guess what? You're going to work. This is not PTO for eternity. You're gonna, we're going to have a time of worship. There's going to be I don't, singing, dancing, whatever. But guess what? You're going to be working. You're going to be plowing fields. You're going to be making stuff. I, I don't know what you're going to be doing, but you're going to be doing purposeful work. Again, go back to Genesis. God wasn't like, oh, boy, I created these people. What am I going to do with them now? They're being idiots. I'm going to make them work. No. Before God said everything's wrong, he said, work. Work is a good thing thing. And you're going to be doing it for eternity. So get used to it. <laughs> but it's going to be perfect. It's going to be amazing. This is heaven. A new earth. It's familiar. It's embodiment. It's a resurrection. And it's going to be worshipped in purposeful work. I'd encourage you check out Revelation 21 and 22. It's talking about physical stuff. Go back to some of the old prophets. We read this all the time, the Isaiah prophecy. Many of you have heard this. What? The lion laying with the lamb. These animals and creatures. Guess what? There's going to be animals in heaven. And so now we get to the common question. Again, another one that I am afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you on this morning. Are, are pets going to be in heaven? And I'm treading on light territory here. I recognize this. Emails from parents the rest of the week. There's going to be animals in heaven. There's going to be pets in heaven. I would contend from Scripture that when it's speaking of the resurrection, it's not speaking of the resurrection of our pets. Humanity and animals are different, and we need to treat them as different. Pets can be an amazing gift, awesome partner, do a lot of good in our society. They're a gift from God, should be enjoyed. Yeah, we should put everyone and everything in their proper place. And so this is what I would get excited about. I'd get excited about that new pet that you never have to take to the vet. I think our local vet isn't even here today. Don't, don't tell him. Don't tell him anything. His business is not going to be very good in the long term. There's going to be animals. It's going to be fabulous. This amazing gift that we have. Your future. My future is resurrected bodies in a brand new earth where everything is perfect. That's what we look forward to. And so let's recap really quickly. Those who are in Christ that die today, they're fully in the presence of God. We don't know exactly how or what that looks like, but I believe they are consciously in the presence of God. Yet, our ultimate hope is this, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn with me there right now. 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to recap this. I want to do it strictly right from the words of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4. New Testament, about halfway back. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Asleep is a term they often use throughout the New Testament to describe death. Those who have passed. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Right here. This is the passage of scripture that I would just cling to. When you're talking about the end times, right here. Start from here and work out from there. This right here gets rid of so many myths. There's not going to be some crazy rapture where you're sleeping, you wake up, and somebody's clothes are laying next to you. That's not me saying that. That right there. Hey, Jesus coming on the clouds, blowing the trumpet, that's not quiet. No one's going to be surprised when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus returns, did you catch that? There's going to be spirits coming with him. And then they get this imagery. This just, you can't even think about this. Those who are coming with are going to get brand new bodies, first and foremost. Those dead in Christ. There's going to be this amazing resurrection that happens. I don't know how that works. Bodies halfway, spirit halfway, and then who knows? This is not a small event. And then what? You and I in the clouds. We weren't snuck into some back closet or back hallway somewhere. Okay? This is a big deal. Everybody on earth is going to know it. Everybody's going to see it. This is our hope, is that those who are with Christ right now will return with Christ, get us who are left, and make us all new. And at that time, Jesus will restore everything. This is your hope. This is our hope. So what does that mean for today? What do I do? What does that mean today? i got to pay the mortgage. Well, there's two things that change when you begin to cling to heaven. And they're the two Ps. I think very simply this, your priorities and your perspective change. When you begin to understand the promise of heaven, the plan of God, you begin to understand and you begin to refocus. Perspective is everything. That no matter what we're going through right now, it's temporary. It may be 79 years, but that's temporary in the grand scheme of things. Whatever you're going through now, it's temporary. Priorities. We're really good at making a big deal out of a small deal. But when you're right focused on heaven, guess what? A lot of the small deals just stay small deals. Because you realize really quick that guess what? might be able to have that for three years. When you think of three years in comparison to eternity, it's like, eh, not even worth comparing, thinking about. 
priorities and perspective changes greatly. Let me focus specifically on the church for a moment. When a church understands the reality of heaven and hell, a church changes their perspective and their priorities as well. Because now, what becomes the number one priority? It's not your comfort today. It's the comfort of everyone we can possibly talk to for eternity. Who cares if you're sitting in a nice chair on Sunday morning for an hour if we have neighbors that are going to be sitting in constant punishment for eternity? What matters is perspective and priorities when we understand God's promise of heaven and God's plan of a new creation and a new resurrection. And so today, do your priorities and do your perspective reflect the promise of heaven? your priorities and your perspective reflect the promise of heaven? I hope the next natural question for a lot of you, or hopefully for people that maybe would listen to this, is this. How do I get there? How do I get to heaven? Right? I hope it sounds pretty good. Brand new body, work that's amazing, no vet bills. I mean, right there, send everybody getting in line. I want to be there. How do I get there? Well, Thomas had the same question for Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place. And Thomas says, what? Wait, what's going on? Where are you going? How do we get there? Jesus responds, John 14, 6, maybe the most famous verse ever. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do you get to heaven? Through Jesus Christ. There's no other Revelation, again, as you're reading Revelation 21 and 22, I'm going to summarize Revelation 21 and 22. Very clearly says this. Those who get to experience the new heaven and the new earth are only those who are covered in white garments. Only those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, how is that? Revelation has this theme in the early chapters of a conqueror. And it says those who are conquerors, those who are conquerors are those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have said, not my goodness, but the goodness of Jesus. Those who are in Christ have said, I've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I trust in Jesus above all else. The question today is not, oh boy, i got to look at this list. And is anything I've done on this list in Revelation 21? Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you this list. Coward, faithless sexual immorality, idolater. Hold, hold on, because most people want to stop right there, sexual immorality. And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns, which is the second death. I can find something on that list that's got my name on it. Everybody in this room can find something on this list that's got their name on it. But to think you get to heaven by avoiding the stuff on this list is doomed. It's done. There's only one way to get to heaven. Trust in the one who would never find anything on this list describing it. Jesus Christ. And let the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus be what you hold at the judgment seat get to the judgments, and I get lots of questions about this. How does it work? 
all I know this from the Bible. When you get to the judgment seat, God's either going to read your record of wrongs or you're going to claim the name of Jesus. Are you ready to claim the name of Jesus? Will you stand before God? Today is a day to have hope because when we claim the name of Jesus Christ, we have hope for eternity. In the midst of talking about hope, the reality is this. We have to deal for just a moment with our loss and our pain. I want to make it crystal clear this morning because I, I'm afraid that many struggle today. I want to speak personally for a moment. Many struggle today because they have this underlying guilt that comes as a result of feeling sadness in the midst of loss. You can get yourself in this absolutely horrible predicament of thinking, man, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't feel this pain, I shouldn't feel this loss. And then all of a sudden what happens? I've heard it directly from people. I'm not a very good Christian. Next thing you know, you're on this, you're on this roller coaster where you're, you're acting, thinking in ways that are so opposite of the message of Christianity. Your loss this morning, your pain, does not deny that you've had loss, you've had or you have pain. He doesn't deny it. But what he does is he says, here's some, something greater. Your loss and your pain is real. Heaven is real. Heaven is greater than heaven is real. I've had the responsibility present with an infant, to be present with a 90-year-old, to be present with a 40-year-old at death. I've held an old person when they're dead. I've held an infant when they're dead. I've held people who wanted to die, and I've held people that went kicking and screaming. And let me tell you this. There's three words that I believe summarize death. Cold, final, and empty. Cold, final, and empty. There's no other way to describe it. Even those who know Jesus Christ, when you're in that moment with them, it changes. Something changes in that moment. It's still cold, empty, but it's final. And when I say final, I mean it's final. I've been at the deathbed of well over 35, and not once, not once has there been a great cold. And I know others that have been at the deathbed of over hundreds, and not once. my hope, and I'm going to hold firm to that hope. Second, I want to finish on a, on a personal note, light, light note, and 
encourage you to do this. I've gone to seminary, all that stuff that a pastor does. I've had to do all the chaplain calls and the worst case scenarios possible, possible. But the one thing that affected me the most when it came to heaven was about five years ago, my mother-in-law passed away from um, cancer about five years ago. And her family, my wife and her family, gone to church their whole life. Sound Christians, solid, solid believers. And during that process, you're kind of the son-in-law, so you're kind of on the son-in-laws to begin with, are just kind of on the outskirts anyhow. And, and so I think the only reason that I was welcomed at the table is because I knew about heaven. And what was amazing during that time, I'll never forget it, my mother-in-law bought a book about heaven. That book, Randy Alcorn, Heaven. And let me tell you, she dug into that book. And she wanted to know everything. She wanted to know every detail. Hey, is this in the Bible, what he's saying here? Is that in the Bible? And she just dug in and read and looked and searched and do whatever it was. Boom, boom, boom. And I can tell you this. There was a vast difference. There was still pain and loss and still pain and loss for the family. But for her personally, I can say this as a guarantee. It was vastly different than the majority of deaths that I've been a part of. Not because she was saintlier than all the others. Because her hope was in heaven. She had taken the bold step of saying this. I'm actually going to believe what God says. And I'm actually going to think about it a little bit. It's okay to think about heaven. It's a good thing to think about heaven. I want to encourage you today as we depart. Think about heaven. next week, would you think about heaven a little bit? Think about heaven. Because then as you're going through your discouragement, you've got the ultimate hope that squelches any discouragement. Let's pray. Everlasting God, it's a tough subject and one of uncertainty and one of unknown. God, I pray that this morning you remove any word that I said this morning that was not from you. Remove that from all of our thoughts. And God, burn in our hearts and our minds your words, your truth. I pray that today, God, you would give each person in this room a hunger for heaven. God, I pray this morning that you would give each of us the attitude of the Apostle Paul that says we depart and desire to depart and be with the Lord, yet remain for fruitful ministry. God, make that the desire of our hearts this morning. And I want to take a moment this morning, God, and pray specifically for those who are in the midst of loss and pain. God, would you work a miracle through your spirit? God, would you capture their hearts this morning and their minds with the hope of heaven? God, give us courage. Give each person courage this morning because of your promise of heaven. So God, we come before you now claiming nothing of our own. We cling to you, Jesus, God. And we ask that you would accept us.
God will accept us and renew us. And we cry out, come Lord Jesus, restore us.